The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So uh, this session is on uh, Darwin and the Darwinian worldview, which uh, may seem to some of you uh, somewhat off-topic or slightly unrelated to the issues of uh, social engagement, law, social policy, some of you interdisciplinary students in different fields, but if you've been through the university, um, pretty much any discipline today has been permeated by uh, evolutionary thinking, the evolutionary worldview, and that would include actually the law. Uh, Daniel Dennett described uh, Darwinism as a universal acid a universal acid that basically burns through, affects uh, absolutely everything that it touches, and in the process redefines life and nature. And uh, I think that um, it would be very difficult for us to credibly address the huge seismic shifts in the social order uh, for interdisciplinary aspect of this program without speaking or saying something about the evolutionary worldview. And I perhaps am going to come at it today in a way that may surprise you in, in some respects because I'm going to look at it as a religious and philosophical phenomenon and uh, how the religious assumptions within Darwinism have affected the way people have looked at the world and continue to look at the world and continue to look at the question of uh, law medicine, and various other, other disciplines. So, beginning in uh, the New Testament, in chap- Acts chapter 17, uh, where the Apostle Paul stands up to uh, speak the gospel, actually, to the Greek philosophers in Athens at Mars Hill, which was then uh, arguably the intellectual center of the ancient world, of the known world, Paul had been sharing the gospel down in the marketplaces with the um, uh, various people anybody wanted to discuss with him, but usually you needed a license to lecture in Athens, so it's quite possible that what they were doing was, uh, insisting on him coming to address the Areopagites, was that uh, they were going to see whether he should be granted a license to teach in Athens, because there were all kinds of teachers, philosophers, and so forth, plying their wares there. And we read in verse 22, Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. But these were humanistic and evolutionary philosophers. He said, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. As part of the Roman Empire, what you had in Athens was uh, large-scale Uh, pluralism, state-sponsored religious pluralism, and it was home to four very prestigious schools of philosophy. The Academy of Plato, the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Garden of Epicurus, the Painted Porch of Zeno, these all date from about 300 BC. So you have to picture the enormity of the situation. You've got a, essentially a converted Jewish rabbi, who, by the way, was educated in Tarsus, which was, a, was another great center of Greek learning and Greek philosophy. That's why Paul is able to cite the Greek poets and the, the Greek writers, because he understood and read, had read Greek philosophy. He's the ideal person for the encounter there uh, of Jerusalem, if you will, with Athens. 
And he finds himself addressing the Epicurean and Stoics, that is the disciples of Epicurus and Zeno. Uh, The Epicureans were ancient naturalists or atomists. What they believed was that a naturalistic explanation had to be given for everything. So there is nothing new uh, under the sun. We're not dealing with a a more fundamentally uh, difficult challenge than Paul was dealing with. They believed that naturalistic explanations had to be given for everything. Pleasure was the goal of existence for the Epicureans. And once you died, your atoms just dispersed into space. That was it. Well, how different is that to Richard Dawkins? I'm not not sure there's any uh, difference. This is what the... Uh, disciples of Epicurus believed. Zeno, the founder of the Stoic school, they agreed that you could only have knowledge through the senses, if you will, but they exalted reason as a governing principle over all matter. They had a cyclic view of history, so there could be no personal immortality. So if you've ever wondered why in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching the gospel and he gets to the resurrection of Jesus, it says they started to scoff and laugh, you now, you now understand Why? The Epicureans were naturalists. There had to be a naturalistic explanation for everything. You can't possibly have a god, especially a personal god, distinct from creation, raising some uh, corpse from the dead. That was absurd to them. And for the Stoic school of philosophy, this was non-rational, and it precluded, since their view precluded uh, resurrection and immortality, they thought that this was completely absurd. And the overwhelming perspective of Greek philosophy was that, any, that spirit and matter were distinct, that matter was either less or evil, was less than the spiritual realm, was a lesser realm, or was even an evil realm. Why would God want to do such a thing? So some of them laughed at this point. Have you ever been laughed at when you're trying to share the gospel? People think it's absurd. Uh, laughable, non-rational, all the things that people come up with. Well, this is what Paul was confronting. And yet, he does not say, I perceive that you're in all wise very non-religious. He says, I see that, I perceive that in all things, you are very religious. Now, of course, there were a pantheon of gods there in um, Athens, and Paul had seen this altar to the unknown god, because what the... uh, pagan Greeks had done as personified the forces of nature and given them names which were the gods what is religion then what, when Paul referred to them as religious what did he really mean interestingly enough um, somebody I would not point to as a wise guide in terms of the faith Tillich but he made it, gave a very interesting definition of religion Paul Tillich writes religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern A concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of life. So for Tillich, religion is actually the ultimate concern that deals with the meaning of life. I think that's as good a definition of any, actually, of the significance of religion, even in terms of its original Latin root, religio, to tie back, to get things moving in the same direction. Fundamentally, it's ultimate concern. It deals with the issue of the meaning of life. And religion was not necessarily for the Greeks or in the present time associated with public acts of worship towards a deity. Aristotle argued for belief in the existence of a prime mover, but that mover was remote, was uninterested in human affairs. For Aristotle, worship was an absurd idea. That was futile. The ancient Greek poems, Hesiod and Homer, 
have the gods and all creation evolving from a primordial reality. In um, Hesiod, the undifferentiated natural world is simply what is. It has a kind of unconditional existence and it gives rise to everything else. It creates a break between heaven and earth and that gap is called chaos. In uh, the Homeric literature, you have a vast primordial expanse of watery stuff out of which the gods evolve and all material reality. And so what you find in Greek philosophy and Greek thought is that the gods themselves were actually derivative beings. What is actually the divinity concept is nature itself. So nature is the de facto god and the, or the divinity concept. And the gods are kind of lesser beings that arise out of nature. So when somebody says to you, you know, I've done a number of uh, debates on the existence of God over the years... And um, one of the opening lines that these atheists favour now, which I think was popularised by Dawkins, was to say, um, I don't believe in Zeus, I don't believe in Thor, I don't believe in, you know, and they'll list a number of gods, and they'll say, um, and I'm also an atheist with respect to your god. Right? So they'll define their atheism as disbelief in the supernatural they'll list all of these gods and they'll try and identify the god of the bible with the greek gods with the greek pantheon of gods so i'm an atheist with respect to yet another i don't believe in those 300,000 gods or in in case of hinduism around 300 million uh, gods uh, and i just add your god to the list but these gods are stationed inside the universe Right, they're products of nature. So the, the, what we need, actually, as Roy Clauser points out, is a doctrine of the divine per se, which is we may not give personal attributes to God, but that which has an unconditional, unconditioned uh, existence, that is, it's dependent on nothing else for its existence, that is your divinity concept. For some people, that's energy, matter, whatever. Well, that was the belief of the Greeks. They were indebted to the Babylonians... Uh, for their doctrine of God as well. <clears throat> Primeval chaos precedes or conditions the gods. Now, if we want to understand the claim of Christianity in our own context, in the contemporary world, we have to recognize, like Paul, the religious character of the worldview we confront and its concept of the divine. The Bible, you see, doesn't see religion simply as the, the, the worship of various gods. It sees... Uh, False religion or idolatry, not just as worshipping, say, Baal or uh, Molech, it actually recognises idolatry as the replacement of the true God with any other non-dependent reality. Any sort of replacement of the true God with any other non-dependent reality, that which upon everything else depends. So, for the Greeks, you essentially had a whole mythology of evolution, and uh, they, they gave some substance to it. They had the chain of being, the scale of nature, as some of the um, Greek philosophers called it. Uh, so you had a kind of gradation there. You, you had a cultural myth that the Greeks accepted. And actually, evolution as an idea is best described as a cultural myth. A myth that is an explanation of life, of origins, that so... Uh, captures the contemporary spirit that we're surrounded by today that people uh, often don't notice the things that contradict it. 
It seems so self-evident to people. That's sort of how a cultural myth functions. It seems so that that's part of reality in life. Uh, I think it was Janine who was telling me over lunch that uh, every aspect of her university education was totally imbibed by this doctrine. You couldn't escape it into any aspect she moved in the, uh, in, within the uh, sciences, behaviorism, psychology, and all of that. It is utterly baptized in this, saturated in this as a cultural myth. Now, the, uh, the Christian has to hold to the Reformation principle that Scripture is its own interpreter and alien categories can't be used to shape its interpretation. In other words, the Bible is actually anti-myth in character. But the doctrine of evolution has actually given us, the, this mythology has given us two essential cultural ideas today. Nature, on the one hand, and the idea of liberty on the other. These are the two uh, great cultural ideas of our time, nature and liberty, some correspondence here to what Dr. Masson was saying earlier. But there's a fundamental tension between these two issues. How can you have a naturalistic, deterministic view of nature, this idea of process, coinciding with human freedom, autonomy? How can nature and freedom coexist together. This is a problem in psychology today. It's a problem in the uh, uh, question of law. I mean, uh, uh, if you're a product of your genes, how, why should we punish criminals? Well, if we're just dancing to our DNA, as Richard Dawkins says, and we're just striving to pass on our DNA, you can read evolutionary justifications of rape today. Because if evolution is the truth about reality and it's just genes doing their work, then passing them on is the objective of a human existence. So how does freedom coincide with nature? Well, the evolutionary mythology, what it does to try and uh, disguise this problem is gives us the idea of progress. Progress. That somehow... Uh, nature is progressing towards a point where man becomes the custodian of his own freedom. So at root, what we have metaphysically in the Darwinian worldview is a revolt against the sovereignty of God. Nature, the divine per se there, replaces God and his predestinating will and purpose and his government of all things. And so when uh, Darwin came along... Many of you may be already accustomed to thinking that he was somehow original. Well, uh, uh, Lucretius and other um, uh, 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 Greek thinkers had already developed various evolutionary accounts and evolutionary stories. It's certainly, I'm going to go on to how, who influenced Darwin in a moment. But George Bernard Shaw said that the world jumped at Darwin. Because he actually, what he did is he captured the spirit of the time. It's, it's not the case that Darwin was working against an establishment that hated his ideas and a resistant church and so on. No, his book sold out like that. Like that. I think it was like 48 hours, maybe less. Origin of Species. Gone. Because the world was ready for a new decree found in nature without the restrictions of the God of Scripture that could be a replacement God. This was the intellectual climate of the 19th century. A vision of progress was bubbling away in 19th century Europe where 
A new liberty could be granted to humanity as they became the custodians of their own future. That is self-conscious man, this is the German philosopher Hegel, the, the Hegelian concept of process, and pro this is already present in social evolution. It didn't yet have a fully worked out scientific uh, justification. How could this, this new doctrine of God, this new predestined of nature be expressed? So the technocrats and the social planners today believe that man, as he merges with his own technology, uh, improves on himself, he learns to control life processes, eventually this, he's going to conquer death, he's going to conquer space, he's going to uh, uh, be a god. They call it transhumanism now, it's another subject, can't go into it now. But the transhuman, the emergence of the transhuman individual, part technology, part man. Sounds far-fetched, but believe me, this is what they believe. And the myth consists in process and progress. And as long as you use scientific language, you know, as long as you talk about neutrons and uh, chromosomes and everything else, any miracle is possible. Like when our sun goes nova, they talk about you know, putting a new sun up in the sky or escaping through a hatch into another dimension in the universe. What if you question the myth? So the myth has a long history. It was revived by Darwin. Mortimer J. Adler of the University of uh, Chicago called evolution a popular myth. He was absolutely, he's not a Christian, he was excoriated for saying so. Karl Popper, perhaps the most noted philosopher of science of the 20th century, famously said that Darwinism is not, and I quote, a testable scientific theory, but a metaphysical research program. <laughs> He was absolutely vilified until he backed down and sort of made a retraction. The noted Columbia University historian Jacques Barzun, commenting on the success of the evolutionary doct doctrine superseding all other beliefs, said, Nor is it hard to understand why it did, for it fulfilled the basic requirements of any religion by subsuming all phenomena under one cause. Nature. So the myth of evolution actually fulfills the same function as biblical Christianity. It has an establishment, it has an official creed, it can discipline heretics, and so on. And that's how it works in our cultural moment. So let's take a bit of a closer look at Darwin himself. Was Darwin original in advancing his naturalistic explanation for life? Well, actually, no. His ideas have been discussed for many decades before. Darwin, as I've said, acted more as a catalyst to aid the development or the renaissance of what was taking place in terms of paganism. Uh, Hegel, the German philosopher, had, always, had already given shape to the idea that world spirit uh, is uh, realizing itself through an evolu a social evolutionary process where uh, essentially a pantheistic model of the universe and understanding of reality was being advocated. So he was not original in terms of even the development of some of the specifics of his idea. Darwin, like everybody else, was a product of his time. People like to think of Darwin as some sort of, you know, um, almost semi-supernatural figure who just suddenly arrived in England out of nowhere. You know, as D D uh, Dawkins says, you know, it made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Suddenly it's like a, like a supernatural angel of atheism descends from the heavens. No, Darwin was a product of his time. 
He was surrounded by the mental furniture of 19th century Europe, in particular the faith of the French philosophes or the intellectuals in the century before Darwin, people like Voltaire, who were developing an understanding of the world based solely, they believed, on human reasoning. It was the spirit of the Enlightenment, the age of reason. They'd rejected the Bible. They'd rejected supernatural revelation as being beyond uh, rationality, beyond the realm of reason. What did these French intellectuals believe? Uh, they were deists at best. Some were atheists. They'd returned really to a Greek conception of a first cause, some sort of rational principle, not the God of the Bible, but a principle of rationality and natural law that was operating independent of a creator who may have kicked the ball, but he'd long since withdrawn from the universe. He may have kicked things off, but he was no longer involved. Now, it's easy to see how deism, this idea that there's some sort of prime mover, gave rise to atheism. I mean, if, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, I, I, can't, I haven't got time to go into the, how the doctrine of the Trinity gives us a personal God, but um, essentially for the Greeks, God was not a person. It's, it, it, it's a, a, a rational conception, almost a limiting concept, really. Uh, just allow, allow there to be rationality to the universe. You need something that kicks things off. And so <clears throat> it naturally gave rise to atheism in people's thinking, at least practical atheism. There was nothing new here. This was the idea of the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Greeks. And uh, not only was that, I, that deistic idea there prior to Darwin, but some of the actual specifics of his theory would been delineated by um, scientists before him. William C. Wells, a Scottish scientist. Patrick Matthew, a Scottish botanist, published in 1813 and 1831, uh, respectively. Uh, Charles's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, prominent scientific figure, many years before the birth of Darwin, advocated evolutionary ideas, including the idea of natural selection. In his book, Zoonomia, and uh, in Zoonomia, published in 1794, 65 years before Origin of Species, uh, he actually uh, even talked about the origins of life in a, some muddy pool somewhere. One other writer on natural selection was Edward Blythe, who was a creationist. He didn't give a positive role to natural selection, that it, that it brought about new, in, uh, new structures and new creatures, uh, but he said it had played a negative role that nature selects out uh, only uh, the, uh, the weak and the unfit, um, and, but it doesn't uh, create any new, uh, distinctly new species. There were a number of others uh, that would be superfluous to discuss here, but there was also the co-discoverer of natural selection. He was a contemporary of Darwin's, Alfred Russell Wallace. He presented to the Royal Society at the same time as Darwin. This was something Darwin acknowledged. Um, and so you, Darwin was in an environment in which process, progress, and evolution were in the very air. It was in the air of the society. It was in the air at the university. It was, he was surrounded by it. Not only so, Alfred Russell Wallace was well known for his devotion to spiritualism and spiritism. So this co-discoverer of DNA, this presented to the Royal Society, became one of the leading occultists in Britain. There's a very important reason for that. Nature replaces God, so magic and control of nature become the source of power. So that's why occultism was so prevalent among the ancient Greeks, power from below. 
if nature is essentially God, well, if you can manipulate and control nature, you can transform, you can control your environment. So there was a tie-in between spiritism and occultism. Uh, uh, Wallace had spent a lot of time actually living amongst Native Americans as well. And uh, so you had here, there were a number of connecting points that meant that pantheism and paganism were all part of this process in European uh, thought. Now, the, um, the idea of development, uh, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the Greek chain of being, Aristotle's concept of the scale of nature. Uh, you can actually trace these ideas right back to Plato. They became more popular during the Renaissance. And what had happened is philosophers began to organize or arrange uh, the natural world in a continuous linear scale with man at the top and the simplest forms at the bottom. So you had um, inorganic life at the bottom, stones, metals, earth, water, and so on. And then at the top of the chain of being, uh, you had human beings. So you had already this idea of a scale of nature in pagan thought. Uh, but what was needed was uh, a fully developed evolutionary description of how these gap, how the um, how, how this movement could have actually taken place between all of these different types, this chain of being. Now, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a ch transition was happening in geology. It's a shock to some uh, today when you explain to them that until the 19th century. People believed in creation, they believed in the global flood, and they believed that the geophysical structure of the Earth was a result of those two things. Uh, but in the uh, 19th century, uh, the geological column, basing itself on the scale of nature, was steadily being developed. So you were having progression here, and what progression in geology seemed to be calling for was progression in biology. How could there be some sort of... Um, uh, evolutionary chain developed in biological thought. We have the rise then of comparative anatomy, which linked itself to this chain of being uh, concept. So one of the things you realize straight away is that Darwin's ideas were largely borrowed. Let me read to you from the work of his own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, from his book, Zoonomia, uh, written at the last part of the 18th century. This is what he says. Would it be too bold to imagine that in the great time since the earth began to exist, perhaps millions of ages before the commencement of the history of mankind, would it be too bold to imagine that all warm-blooded animals have arisen from one living filament, that is a simple cell, don't forget they had no comprehension of microbiology, of the genetic revolution, they didn't understand any of that, so they still believed that there was such a thing as simple life, okay? which the great first cause imbued with animality, that sort of gave it life, with the power of acquiring for itself new parts, we call that co-option, attending new propensities directed by irritations, sensations, volitions and associations, and thus possessing the faculty of continuing to improve by its own inherent activity and of delivering down those improvements by generation to its posterity world without end. Erasmus Darwin. Charles doesn't credit his grandfather uh, properly at all. There's a lot of plagiarism in Charles Darwin's work and unacknowledged uh, taking of ideas from uh, other scientists. 
But the, the, you can hear the deism in here. I mean, it's, and, it, and it's the most remote kind of deism. Nature's doing everything, but there may have been some kind of divine first cause that animated the first filament. Okay? And this doctrine became rank atheism in Darwin's dad, Robert Charles Darwin. Now, Charles Darwin himself sometimes did refer to a creator. He did so in The Origin of Species. He regretted that later, but uh, he says so. I'll come to that in a moment. But in Darwin's world, as Darwin was growing up, put yourself into Charles Darwin's shoes for a moment, get into uh, his mindset, his family environment. In his age, God was becoming increasingly irrelevant. He was a theory, not a person. Enlightenment rationalism in deism and Unitarianism were movements contributing to this trend. So Unitarianism was actually quite well described by uh, Jeffrey in an earlier uh, lecture. Um, it was a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity and salvation was by moral accomplishment. And more and more the sophisticated theologians were saying that the personal God of Scripture was just unnecessary. He was superfluous to human life and existence. And at the same time, there was a, uh, a belief that God governed the universe exclusively by natural laws in a very mechanistic way. The, the universe was essentially a great big clock. And it worked perfectly harmoniously without God, thanks very much. God may have been the watchmaker. You know uh, Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker? Okay, that was a, kind of a response to William Paley's book uh, on um, the sciences, who, who, who gave the illustration of a man discovering a watch and would he presuppose there was some design and so on and so forth okay basically they were beginning to see the universe as governed almost exclusively by mechanical mechanistic laws so there were two basic ideas these are worth getting down in your notes the first was divine sanction and the second was intellectual necessity divine sanction intellectual necessity the first idea divine sanction is that god uses secondary causes natural laws to govern everything these are independent of him somehow. So the Christian conception of law is that it's God's regular way of working. So God is active in creation, not only by creating all things, but sustaining all things, and he works in a regular way. We observe those regularities, we call them laws. This was a different idea. This was that there were inherent within nature itself, without God, independent of God, laws that govern all of reality mechanistically. God is not imminent, he's not providentially involved at all. The second idea, intellectual necessity, is that only naturalistic methodology and uniformitarian principles, that is, everything's gone on in the past as it's going on now, can make sense of science. So you can, at no point can you let a divine foot in the door. These were the ideas. So what happened at first is that scientists, especially scientists who were Christian, and the theologians who were influenced by this kind of thinking tried to account for biblical events like the fall, the flood, the destruction of Jericho, everything in terms of natural mechanistic ideas. Biblical events then were, were, were sought to be fitted into a mechanistic cosmogony. So, for example, from Descartes on, what happened was there were these developments of um, evolutionary ideas that posited a chaotic primeval void, and out of that void came this perfectly ordered universe. And into this idea, you had to try and fit all these biblical accounts, and that's quite difficult. 
So what did they do? Well, William Whiston, Isaac Newton's successor at Cambridge, he said that the Earth could have been created by a comet. And the global flood was another comet. So you had them trying to explain uh, the events of the Bible in terms of purely naturalist, natural phenomena. This reflected the idea that the universe was a huge machine and was coming under purely the operate. Even divine punishment was just mechanical. So the destruction of Jericho and stuff, it was all mechanical. David Hume in the early 18th century had said the idea of miracles was absurd. He rejected the notion of God intervening or interfering with the regular action of the laws of nature. This was the, this was the idea of the European intellectuals. And so what was shaping Western man's perception of the world, his science and his morality, was actually metaphysical assumptions about God. Now this is absolutely critical. The change was not a change in science. It wasn't that somebody had, uh, you know, was on the um, Peruvian islands and happened to observe a reptile become a mammal. Right? We just put a bit of time in between and we think the absurd becomes rational. Right? Go, oh, yeah, millions of years, or maybe anything could happen. Right? No, it wasn't a scientific shift. What happened is people's thinking about God was moving from Christian assumptions to pagan assumptions. There was a shift in the doctrine of God. That's what was uh, critically taking place. God was becoming unnecessary, superfluous to science philosophy and theology and so there are two themes that are very self-evidently at work in Darwin Gnosticism and natural theology and if you're making notes write those down Gnosticism and natural theology what are they Gnosticism uh, Cornelius Hunter in his book Darwin's God and I recommend that book if you want to understand this issue Darwin's God Cornelius Hunter he says this Gnosticism is an ancient belief that draws a strong distinction between spirit and matter spirit is good matter is evil Whereas the Bible says that God made the world, Gnosticism holds that God is separate from the world. Thus, Gnosticism is a theodicy. That is, a, a theodicy is an attempt to account for evil in the world. Yes, there is evil, but God, but it is far from God. God is separate and distinct from the world and not responsible for evil. In Darwin's time, the world was increasingly seen as controlled by natural laws. God may have instituted these laws in the beginning, but he had not interfered since. The laws were now his secondary causes. As in Gnosticism, God was seen as separate from the world. So the Gnostics believed that you can't look for signs of God in nature. You, nature tells us nothing about God. You can't detect the work of God in nature. God is totally separate from nature. His government is totally by independent laws. And this parallel view was developing that urged a separation of religion and science. It said that science is a totally different thing. You can't ever cross over Revelation and the Bible with the idea of what's going on historically in nature. So the Gnostics could not believe that God became a man, and that was shared by Darwin's parents, the Unitarians. Unitarians rejected the Incarnation. It was completely logical. They couldn't believe that uh, God would have... <coughs> come into the material world. They couldn't envision a God involved in the misery of the world. So that was the first idea, Gnosticism. The second idea was natural theology, which did look for signs of God in the creation. And this was exemplified by the man I mentioned earlier, William Paley, in the uh, 18th century. 
But these people held a very simplistic and overly optimistic view of the world that failed to account for evil and neglected to consider the realities of pain and suffering properly. So instead of a biblical picture of creation groaning, which is what we get in the Bible, a fallen creation that's awaiting restoration, the natural theologians led people to expect there would be a perfect harmony in the world. You've got this, you've got this watch, this clock, and it works perfectly, and nature is like that. It's this perfect mechanism. Paley's arguments were um, influential on Darwin to start with. He was impressed by them. But the evil in nature that bothered David Hume started to bother, bother Darwin as well. And actually, Darwin's solution to this problem was his theory of evolution. Michael Roos, the atheist philosopher, says, Darwin is characterized as one who held some kind of basic belief in a God who works at a distance through unbroken law. Having set the world in motion, God now sits back and does nothing. Darwin wasn't alone here. He just picked up the spirit of the age. This is the cradle in which he was rocked. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was actually, by the way, involved in the activities of the French Revolution. It's very interesting when you see how all the pieces uh, connect. That was an atheistic movement, um, and the deistic beliefs of his grandfather yet thus became atheism in uh, Charles's dad, Robert. Charles's mother and father were educated under a teacher called Joseph Priestley, who was an Enlightenment rationalist, and he tried to weld this Enlightenment rationalism with Christianity. And this manifests itself in Darwin's parents as Unitarianism. They were Unitarians. They didn't believe in revelation for God. They didn't believe in the uh, virgin birth. They didn't believe in the incarnation. So Charles's education began at the Unitarian Chapel Day School, where he was getting all these mixed messages about God. On the one hand, he had his father's skepticism. On the other, his, his uh, mother's ardent Unitarian faith. He enters university in Edinburgh in 1825, and here all these evolutionary ideas are all in the air. He was there to study medicine, he got bored with that, and he started sitting in on the geology classes and zoology. Came under the influence of a man called Dr. Grant, who was an admirer of Jean-Baptiste de Lamarck. Lamarck was a deist who published a theory outlining transmutation of evolutionary development a long time ago. So this is the environment of Charles's education. Now, his father realized quickly that his son was more interested in the natural sciences than medicine, so he said, you should go into ministry. You should become an Anglican minister. <laughs> Why? Well, because it wasn't seen as a calling in those For most of them, it wasn't seen as a vocation, calling under God to go and preach the gospel. It was seen as a cushy number where your material needs were all taken care of and you had the leisure time to do naturalistic naturalism uh, to do natural uh, what's the word I'm reaching for to be a naturalist right? not to run around as a naturist but to be a naturalist you know, geology and, and observation all that. and so many of the geologists of the period were clergymen they were actually clergy so Charles Darwin was part of the leisured upper class he was a person who could put his feet up his father had all the money he was going to get this big inheritance so he went to Cambridge to do a BA in theology. And when he did his BA to prepare for the ministry, there was no Bible involved in the curriculum. The only uh, specifically theological material he read 
was Evidences of Christianity and Principles of Moral and Political Philosophy, William Paley, Paley's Natural Theology. And when he was at Cambridge, he uh, came under the influence of the Reverend Adam Sedgwick, who was Professor of Geology there, and then under the influence of Charles Lyell, his work on the principles of geology, and steadily, Charles's, what was left of his faith in some kind of a god was waning. Now, what happened? The British Empire, expanding as it was, wanted accurate maps to be made uh, for their captains on the world's high seas. So Captain Robert Fitzroy, 26-year-old, wanted a companion of equal status to go on the journey with him on the HMS Beagle. Have you ever seen um, Master and Commander with Russell? Who's seen that film, Master and Commander with Russell Crowe? Not many of you. That's a great movie. You need to watch that. Fantastic film. Um, and there you actually see uh, how this operated. The, 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 the doctor on the ship was a naturalist, and he, he was a kind of class companion for the captain on this voyage. Darwin had a family connection, so he, got, he managed to get onto this ship to go on this voyage. The HMS Beagle left Plymouth December 27th, 1831. He had two books with him. Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology and John Milton's Paradise Lost in his suitcase. Interesting couple of books, choices. Darwin's conversion to uh, evolutionary thought then was a progressive one. And the two assumptions that he became quickly committed to were, one, the Earth was ages old, as per Charles Lyell's uh, uniformitarian geology, and second, modification that he had seen among the finches of the Galapagos Islands had occurred in living organisms over vast periods of time. So he was influenced by Lyell, Thomas Malthus, Compte, and his own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, and he began to abandon any remaining belief in the validity of the Bible. This is what he said in his autobiography. He says, the more we know of fixed laws of nature, the more incredible miracles become. He said the biblical authors were ignorant, uh, that um, in particular he couldn't stand the idea of divine judgment. In his autobiography, he concluded that judgment wouldn't be just because it would fall upon his family. This is what he said. Father, brother, and almost all my best friends would be everlastingly punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. Right, so you have a reaction to biblical theology. He married a woman called Emma Wedgwood, his first cousin. Not the best idea, but that was done in the, amongst the aristocracy in Europe, uh, which helped stave off complete atheism because she was a Unitarian as well. So he didn't marry a Christian woman, he married another Unitarian. She denied the inspiration of scripture. She held that Jesus was a creation of God and everybody who was morally good went to heaven. I mean... And yet she did believe in some sort of God and she feared for Charles because she knew he didn't really believe in a God at all. And in their letters to each other, you find this. Uh, she used to write to him a lot about his skepticism and in one letter he, to her, he says, when I am dead, <laughs> know that many times I have kissed and cried over this. He used to weep over her letters to him about his godlessness, even though she wasn't even a Christian. So if you want to understand the... Uh, evolutionary perspective, the Darwinian worldview, you have to understand uh, not just the influence of fellow naturalists, not just the French philosophes, not just the long-age geology, but the key is this doctrine of the church at the time, seeing uh, this notion of rational theism, of deism, evolution became, in a sense, Darwin's response to the problem of evil. Why the world was the way it was. 
with these two different views. On the one hand, uh, the idea of natural theology, which said he should expect perfect order, and then his experience of nature red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson had put it. So from the cradle, he'd been exposed to this doctrine of God, a doctrine of God that was remote from creation, mechanistic laws in motion for the governance of the world, nature taking the place of God in natural theology. He had ten children, Charles Darwin. Three of them died. One was called Annie. She died at the age of ten. He was very close to her. He couldn't face death at any point in his life. He didn't attend the funeral of his dad. He didn't attend the funeral of his favorite daughter, Annie. He was a very... I've just uh, been reading a book called The Dark Side of Charles Darwin. He was a very uh, tormented man. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He was physically ill a lot of the time. He was um, almost agoraphobic. Uh, there's a lot of things that were... that He would have been an evangelistic project for you if you'd known him, right? <laughs> That's how you'd have thought of him. The man needs Christ. But as he looked at the rationalistic conception of God of the Victorian age... And friends, this is why what the church teaches is so important. Because you could argue that it was the church and the church's education of Darwin that ruined him and birthed this idea. He had this rationalistic conception of God in the Victorian age that measured his observations about the studies of the world, natural and moral world, that he couldn't reconcile with nature red in tooth and claw and he was quite a morally sensitive man in many respects he gave up hunting because he didn't like shooting birds I mean the aristocracy loved hunting but he was distressed by shooting a bird Uh, he expressed revulsion at slavery even though his ideas in the descent of man promoted the idea that many men were subhuman and that certain races the non-Caucasian races were lower in the evolutionary scale but he this is the problem with non-unbelief. It's schizophrenic. Right? On the one hand, he's, a, he's growing up in the Christian world as a kind of English gentleman, exposed to churchianity all around him. On the other, he's trying to develop this theory that really denies uh, human nature. Nietzsche castigated Darwin, mocked him mercilessly for his inconsistency. Because Darwin was a philanthropist over here, and yet he was an atheist, a materialist, and a, a, an evolutionist over here. He believed that some people were subhuman, which, of course, was an important idea to Nietzsche. He experienced revulsion at slavery, and he expressed um, uh, admiration for the work of Christian missionaries in the Fijian Islands. But he was, in the end, a product of his age, and in the end, his theory of evolution was a product of his faulty conception of God. Evolution, then, was his negative theological argument, and that's still how it is used today. Evolution is a negative theological argument against God. His false doctrine of God gave rise to a false doctrine in the natural sciences. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit in these last few minutes. What do I mean that here was a theological argument? Darwin was essentially using a theological argument to absolve God, his conception of God, of wrongdoing. There was a whole group of thinkers called the Cambridge Platonists who were seeking to explain the biblical creation story just like the Gnostics before them uh, to try and describe how this good God of of, uh, rational theism could have created such a messy creation. 
How was that possible? Uh, one of you last night was talking to me at the, the, the dinner table about this problem that uh, one of your family members keeps raising, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of a messy creation. How is it that you could have this imperfect result? And the problem was these people weren't actually teaching the Bible. Darwin followed in this tradition, you see, of trying to provide an answer like the Cambridge Platonists, but he filled in some of the details. And this is what Cornelius Hunter says. The common denominator between Darwin's evolution and the earlier theodicies is that God governs by secondary causes, his fixed natural laws, and that God is justified to humankind when we view natural evil as the result of some sort of cosmic constraint outside of God. So in other words, the natural evil in the world had nothing to do with God. He was totally removed from it. Darwin worked, he says, within this tradition, and it's no surprise that he arrived at his theory of evolution, which claims that nature's imperfections and evils arose from natural forces rather than a divine hand. And what this means, of course, is that once all these things are arising from nature, everything then arises from the divine per se. Everything arises from nature. The God behind nature steadily becomes completely unnecessary. So Darwin's view of God was like the God of the Greeks, the God of ancient paganism. He even later regretted even referring to a creator. In The Origin of Species, where he talks about creation or refers to a creator, he wrote to one of his friends a letter he said, I have long regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used the Pentateuchal term of created, by which I really meant appeared by some wholly unknown process. The dilemma was that the problem of morality, having ethics to live as a Christian English gentleman, seemed to require God. How do you have morality without God? So natural evil seemed to require divine absence, but moral good and evil seemed to require a divine presence. He was caught on the horns of this dilemma. So, in sum, how might we summarize this idea of Darwin's theodicy? Well, Darwin was first a product of his time. So get this into your mind. He had a deistic conception of God, a mechanical view of the world. Second, he presented what we might call an evolutionary theodicy that distanced the creator from natural evil. So Darwin did not start a movement. All he did was accelerate what was already going on and taking place in Europe. His worldview wasn't revolutionary. He used scientific terms to make it more respectable. God is absolved by being reduced, uh, by, by reducing cause and effect uh, realities in the world to purely nature God is distant, he's unknowable, he's not revealed himself, he's an impersonal being. So you have for Darwin a self-regulating universe, operating, term, operating in terms of impersonal laws, in terms of this chain of being, the simple to the more complex, and it had this new rationalistic dress, and uh, science and religion, or fact and faith, are totally separated. This was true of most of the clergymen of the times. They'd had this radical separation. Uh, the, actually, the um, founder of the Boy Scout movement, Baden-Powell, said something very much along this line. He says, we, we cannot ever combine faith and fact, science and revelation. They are completely separate. separate. So we have this idea that religion and science are alien to one another, they are to be kept totally separate. And by that, they didn't mean that an idea of God and science should be kept separate. They meant that the idea of the Christian God 
The worldview that involves a Christian theistic conception of God rather than a pagan concept of the divine per se. It's okay for nature to function as God. You can have nature giving you science, but you cannot have the God of Scripture giving you science. The reality is that there's never been a conflict between science and religion in the sense that you've got faith and the claims of science. The issue is that there are some scientists who work on the basis of theistic assumptions and there are scientists who work on the basis of naturalistic assumptions. So you have the edifice of naturalistic science and then you have the edifice of theistic science. It isn't a quite, it's two worldviews that are fundamentally in conflict. Now, Darwin recognised, and this shows you how theological the problem was for him, he realised that the problem uh, the evolutionary worldview deals with is the problem of moral and natural evil having to appear and disappear in relationship to God. This is his theological concern. He wrote a letter to his friend, Asa Gray, in the United States, and this is what he said. This is what Darwin said. Listen to this question. He says, I see a bird I want for food. Take my gun and kill it. I do this designedly. An innocent and good man stands under a tree and is killed by a flash of lightning. Do you believe, and I should really like to hear, that God designedly killed this man? If you believe so, do you believe that when a swallow snaps up a gnat, that God designs that particular swallow should snap up that particular gnat at that particular instant? I believe that the man and the gnat are in the same predicament. If the death of neither man nor gnat are designed, I see no good reason to believe that their first birth or production should be necessarily designed. Notice he posits the idea of an innocent and good man standing under a tree. So he, he, he has the, uh, the, he denied the idea of the fall already. But he's saying, look at all these different things that are going on in nature. How can you say God's involved in all of that? And it would be inconsistent to say he's involved in this one and not in the other. Well, in that sense, he was right. Organic man, then, is a product of nature. There's no design. We have this universal acid that burns through absolutely everything. So you see that the essence of Charles's argument was a religious argument. Scriptures declare that God is actually free to create calamity. The Bible says that God knows the hairs of our head, and when Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my father. That is, the providence of God governs everything. Yes, God does know when every nap will be snapped up by every bird. He knows when a single hair falls out of your head. He knows the thought, our words before they're even on our tongue. But this wasn't part of the rational deism of the theology of the church at the time. God is removed from the world. God and creation, God and matter don't mix. So Darwin's theodicy, explain, to, trying to explain natural evil, distancing it from God, nonetheless failed to tell us why we perceive it to be evil. But evolution took hold and people began to think then of everything uh, in terms of the evolutionary story. That means that morality is derived from evolution. Darwin said this, he said, as the monkey fears the snake, so the child believes in God. As the monkey fears the snake, so the child believes in God. Our beliefs in God, our belief in morality, everything is actually really a product of naturalistic causes and effect. There is no morality that transcends you or I. Darwin actually got rid of that passage out of his autobiography. She didn't like it. Um, one of the benefits of editing people's work after they're dead. But law 
uh, becomes a product of evolution. Law becomes simply an aspect of it's a social construct. Right? That's how the evolutionist tries to account for ethics today. They are purely evolutionary in origin. And despite the horrors of social Darwinism, of the eugenics movement, of Nazism, Marxism, the idea is simply that the human mind evolves to believe in the gods or the god, or a god, and naturalistic material causes are used to explain everything. What are they saying about creation? Evolution is a negative theological argument. What they're really saying to you, to me, is that God would not have made it this way. God would not have made it this way. God surely couldn't have made a cuckoo to push the young out of the nest or the wasp to act as a parasite in a host. Surely good God did not make the mosquito. This God who would have designed everything mechanically perfectly surely would not have made the world this way. So what you actually have before you have the theory of evolution is you have a doctrine of God. That's what gave rise to it. You have a belief, you have a theological conception of God, one that dominated the Victorian age, that led to this theodicy, ejecting God from the universe. So Hunter writes, the great myth of our time, evolution. This is the great myth of our time. He said, evolution is not a story of a bold scientific stroke that has been beautifully borne out by the advances of science against metaphysical resistance. It's nearly the exact opposite. It is not that evolution is utterly unscientific or that it completely lacks evidence. Evolution supporting evidence is outrun by the counter-evidence. Both, both the 19th and 20th century provided more than enough challenges to put, evolutionary, to put evolution's validity in doubt, but the 19th century metaphysical trends have continued through and beyond the 20th century. Evolution's compelling argument and the reason for its stunning success come not from its scientific support, but from indirect arguments against creation. How can you actually find evidence against the divine without first assuming something about the divine? The evolutionists from Darwin have superimposed the idea of God over creation, and when they don't match up too well, they offer this naturalistic explanation for everything. So the end result of Darwin's theory is not primarily that there's no God or that it leads most people there, but rather that God is disjoint from the world. The God involved in creation is not really any God at all. The God of evolution, whether he exists or not, does not have a role in nature. So the main objective of the evolutionary theodicy is not necessarily atheistic, but is to remove the creator from the world, from his creation, because that will give man liberty and autonomy in a universe of infinite possibility. You've got no God to be accountable to. The process of evolution provides infinite possibility. Nature is freed from God and man's conscience is freed from God's law. That's the outcome of evolutionary thinking. Nature's freed from God. Man's conscience is freed from God's law. And then eventually we are back full circle to ancient Greek thought. Chet Ramo, the science writer, endorsed by Stephen G. Gould, as a wise religious humanist who will heal the false and unnecessary rifts of our intellectual culture, he said this. This is a science writer, true believers and skeptics. This is what he says. The God of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is, the God, it is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of dark, of meaning and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began with the first human who experienced awe, contingency, fear. 
There encounter Gate Jordan Silent, the god of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly necessary. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear, beyond words, beyond logic. What is it? It is everything that is. That's a contemporary science writer. That's pure pantheism. And this is now the idea that is uh, coming to uh, so infiltrated our culture, nature, as God openly put forward as a divinity, has replaced the God of the Bible. Everything that lives is holy. The world moves beyond good and evil. Uh, you can't criticize nature. If it occurs in nature, it's good. There is only time, process, and social convention. And it is that uh, revolutionary mo uh, movement since uh, Darwin, since the 19th century, that has permeated and infiltrated every aspect of education today. And those who try to wed Christianity and evolution either end up having to accept Gnosticism, uh, a God disjoint from nature, a God who's not really involved, or a process theology open theism where God is part of the process. God is guessing, God is responding creatively to all the change that's happening all of the time. And that's the position of the theistic evolutionist today. My time is up. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.